1 Corinthians 12 in your Bibles. After our revival conference last week with Evangelist Stevens, we'll jump back into our series. Now, we spent three weeks of messages in and around 1 Corinthians 12. We spent a message uh, giving our definitive statement on the gifts, the sign gifts in particular, and why we do not believe the sign gifts are valid for this age. Then we spent a week expositing 1 Corinthians 12 and showing you what uh, 1 Corinthians 12 was really harping on, which was the unity of members among the diversity of gifts. The fact that there are many gifts, but there are there is only one body. And then, last time we were together, two weeks ago uh, in this passage, we were talking about the spiritual gifts. And we spent morning and evening service speaking in regard to the spiritual gifts, what the spiritual gifts are, exploring them from 1 Corinthians 12, exploring them from Romans 12, exploring them from Ephesians chapter 4. And in doing so, encouraging you to begin taking the steps to identify what your spiritual gift is. Because we learned that everyone who is a believer has a gift that is given, and we learned from 1 Corinthians 12 that the reason why these gifts have been given is so that you can have your place in the local church. So that you can serve the body of Christ. And if you're not serving the body of Christ with your spiritual gift, then you are falling short of Christ's purpose for your gift, as was clearly stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. That means to profit everyone. Your gift is not given to you to profit you. It's given to you to serve the church. Now, as we continue this week, I'm going to begin in 1 Corinthians 12, 29 for context, and then we're going to step into 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter uh, on love, on charity. This chapter is spoken of all around the world as we speak to teach one another, or excuse me, as we, as we are seeking, as we are attempting to teach one another what it means to love. Perhaps you have parts of 1 Corinthians 13 on your wall or on your welcome mat or on a coffee mug. It's everywhere. We see 1 Corinthians 13. Paul's words in this chapter are idyllic, poetic, and powerful. They inspire action as much as they exhibit wisdom. And there is much we can learn about love, and we will. But I would also like you to see something else through this chapter of Scripture today, perhaps something that you've never quite seen before in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not just convicting what we'll learn today, but it's also very interesting and entirely consistent with what we've read in the epistle to this point. See, sometimes, particularly when we get to these special passages of Scripture, the ones that really resound with us, we can forget that it's written in an epistle. It's written in a letter. It's written in context. It was written to be read as one large epistle to a church, and as such, the previous context really does and should inform us as to what Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians 13. And what that means, as we consider the flow of thought, is that when Paul is speaking of charity, he is speaking of charity within the context of spiritual gifts. And so while he is indeed going to be speaking about charity, love, we must not divorce it from his context and not see how it connects to the way in which we exercise our spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. And so in chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, Paul asks some questions. He says this, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now the question, or questions as it were, that initiate the teaching of this charity chapter 
are found in chapter 12. These are the questions that initiate what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. He's taught on the equality of the gifts already, that certain gifts do not receive more, while certain gifts do receive more worldly attention, they receive more worldly honor than other gifts, while the signed gifts do have a particular tendency to receive more earthly commendation, the gift of healing, the gift of tongues, miracles, those sorts of things, none are more or less important in the eyes of God and to the church of God. Furthermore, verse 24 of chapter 12 reminded us that, in fact, the ones, those gifts that seem to have a less obvious need or of less import or of less glory in the body are, in fact, the ones that have more abundant honor in the eyes of God as they are the ones that are playing the role, if you will, of, of silently stitching the body of Christ together. And so Paul is trying to tell the people, yes, you have feet, and you have arms, and you have legs, and you have eyes, and you have ears, and you have a mouth, but one is no better than another. Don't try to be something you're not, and don't think that something, one gift is better than another gift because they're all necessary in the body of Christ. And so Paul asks all of these questions in verses 29 and 30. Is every member going to have one of these physically exalted gifts? Is every member of the church going to have one of these gifts that has great material honor? Well, no. Will every member have the privilege of being the church's poster child? No. And not only do we see these rhetorical questions quite clearly that they're no's in the English, but in the Greek it's even more clear. The answer to his questions are no. Not everybody has these physically exalted gifts. And so what's his point? Why did he ask these questions? Look at verse 31. He says, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. What Paul is attempting to do in these verses is to minimize the church's focus upon the earthly honor and glory that can accompany those particular spiritual gifts that by nature get recognition. The teachers, the evangelists, the preachers in our context today, as the sign gifts have passed away, tend to gather far more recognition in the church than, say, the giver or the minister or the exhorter. We have people that serve this church every week. They serve it through giving bountifully of what they have. They serve it through exhorting one another, through giving people phone calls, through inviting people over. These things are knitting the body of Christ together. And pastor may not be involved. And so while pastor is the one that's standing up here, and, and if people were to look at a uh, a flyer, a door hanger for our church. It doesn't say Pastor Jamin Wickler, giver, so-and-so, uh, servant, so-and-so, church cleaner, so-and-so, pianist, so-and-so. It doesn't go through each person that's serving the church in order. It only has Pastor Jamin Wickler on it. That doesn't change the fact that pastor's gift of teaching is is not elevated in honor above the others in the eyes of God. It's not elevated in esteem above others in the eyes of God. I'm simply doing what God has gifted me to do. And you all ought to be doing what God has gifted you to do. In fact, Paul is telling them in verse 31, rather to covet, that word is literally the word zealous, zero, to be zealous over. It doesn't mean that you want it. We've already said uh, the spiritual gift is something you identify, not something you choose. So he's not telling us uh, the 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 believers here to choose which gift they want, but rather to exalt, to be zealous over, to be excited about those other gifts. Be excited over the best gifts. Be excited over that person who is exercising his gift of giving, his gift of ministry, his gift of encouragement, his gift of edification, his gift of discernment. Be excited. Be zealous. Covet earnestly those gifts. Desire those gifts as well. He says, if you're going to be zealous over any gifts, it should be those ones that are highly honorable. Those ones that stitch us together. May I, may I give you an example here? Maybe this will help piece it together a little bit. This is what I thought of when I was trying to wrap my mind around this idea. 
When I was in middle school, I took home economics both years, 7th and 8th grade. I took woodshop too, so you know, I, I wanted to learn to sew, though, and, and those sorts of things. So I took woodshop, I took home economics. Actually, I got an A in economics and a C in woodshop, if that tells you anything about your pastor. Maybe I shouldn't have said that, but uh, I've always been good with detail. So I made a pillow. And on this pillow, I stitched Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. And so I made the pillow, I stuffed the pillow, and then I stitched Calvin on the front of it. My mom still has that pillow. Uh, last time I saw it, it's been a while since I've been in Colorado, but it was, it was one of the pillows that she places on her bed. Her, you know, she makes the bed and then she has all the pillows on her bed and Calvin's right in the middle there. <coughs> Bright blue pillow that doesn't match anything. That's alright. Her son made it in seventh grade. And so Calvin is there and he's typical Calvin, hands behind his back, you know, walking and looking kind of mischievous and all of that. And, and that's, that's, that's what's on the pillow. Now, if you were to look at that pillow, what you would see is Calvin. If we were to strike up a conversation about that pillow, we'd strike up a conversation about Calvin and maybe Hobbes because they just, they go in tandem, right? And so that is what we would strike up a conversation about. That is what is at the forefront of the pillow. But let me ask you a question. Does Calvin have anything to do with that pillow functioning properly? Does Calvin have anything to do with that pillow staying together? No. Calvin is just the stitching on the front of the pillow. There's some invisible stitching. You don't see it. But that stitching is what's holding the pillow together. There's some fluff buried behind that blue fabric. That fluff is what makes that pillow worth anything as a pillow. And so, even though Calvin is what we would see, Calvin is what we would talk about, Calvin would be the forefront on our minds when we saw that pillow. Calvin would be nothing without the invisible stitching and the fluff that's on the inside. It's kind of the church. Yeah, you've got the pastor and he's up here in his suit and his tie and his shirt and he's preaching and he prepares to give you the Word of God and, and that's my gift and I need to be a good steward of the gift that the Lord has given me and, and, and it is important, it's an important element of the church that the Word of God goes forth and that the people of God learn. But you know, there's some invisible stitching in this room. And please pardon the uh, analogy, but there's some fluff in this room. No offense. There's some, there, there, there's some people in this room that are keeping the infrastructure of this church together by exercising their spiritual gifts among the body. And maybe your pastor is a part of that stitching. Maybe your pastor is a part of that fluff. But I'm certainly not all of it. And I try not to let my sermons be much fluff. That may give you an idea, a concept of what we're talking about here. What is the pastor without his church? What is the teacher without the body of Christ? What good is my gift if I don't have people to receive what God has gifted me to tell? So Paul says if you're going to covet a gift, if you're going to be zealous over a gift, if you're going to exalt gifts, if you're going to get excited about gifts, get excited about the gifts that, though they seem less honorable, are really the backbone of the church. But then Paul changes gears. He asks the reader to set aside their thinking about what their gift is and their thinking about some greater than others. Really set aside all of their thinking about the spiritual gifts as far as he has presented it to think about something far, far more important. Now, we've spent weeks on the spiritual gifts, but can I tell you what I'm going to tell you today is more important than you knowing what your spiritual gift is. What I'm going to tell you today is more important than you having a good grasp on the gifts in general. Pastor, you say, in the context of spiritual gifts, what could be more important than knowing what you have and knowing what's out there? Well, that's a great question, and that's what Paul is going to answer. He is about to present something that he calls a more excellent way. We often talk about good, better, and best in the Christian life. You have that which is sinful, and that's wrong. And then when you step out of the realm of sin into the realm of liberty, you have good, better, and best. Things that you can do, but they're not expedient. Lawful, but not expedient. 
things that um, would be better than just the minimum, and then things that are best. Where you've set aside those things that even you can do to pursue that which you, you, you set aside things that you can do for yourself to pursue that which you could do for God. You've decided not to pop in the video that night and instead you've decided to go evangelize your neighbor. It's not wrong to pop in the video if it's a proper video. It's not wrong to do that, but it's better if you were not going to waste time watching a movie and instead put that time into seeking to bring folks into the kingdom of God. And so this is that good, better, or best scale. When we talk about the spiritual gifts, Paul says spiritual gifts are good and important and you're going to exercise them in the church and they need to be exercised in the church, but I've got something more important for you. I've got a more excellent way. Rather than getting all excited about the spiritual gifts, rather than getting all worked up over who has what gift and how can you, how can you, you use that gift, let me tell you something more important still. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Please look at it with me. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I give, have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Those are some pretty heavy words. May I translate that into my own thinking? Though I have the gift of teaching and can exposit and deliver the Word of God with clarity, if I don't exercise that gift in love, it is worthless. It is nothing. It is a moot point. Paul begins by addressing the gift of tongues. This was the big deal in the church. Tongues was one of the biggest issues. We'll see that when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. This is the gift they all wanted. This was the gift they were all excited about. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, even if I were to speak with this special gift so much that I don't only speak as a man, but I speak as an angel, I can do it in a state that will make me useless and meaningless as useless and as meaningless as simply blaring a horn or tinkling of a cymbal. If you just lay on the horn again and again and again in your car, it's a pretty useless, obnoxious sound. Paul says the gift that, that you are exercising, the spiritual gift that you are exercising outside of love can become nothing but an obnoxious, droning sound or action. He says in verse 2, addressing the gifts of prophecy and discernment and knowledge and faith. We defined each one of these gifts last time. The prophet was a fourth teller, declaring the revealed word of God. The discerner was a man who had an understanding to separate truth from error. The one with knowledge had the gift of being able to study and learn and impart. The man of faith has an unusual capacity to trust in and act upon the revealed Word of God. These are other gifts which we might say can be high-profile gifts. Yet Paul says that whether you have any or all of these gifts, if you lack this particular virtue, the virtue of charity, it makes you spiritually nothing. Spiritually ineffective. You're dead spiritual weight. Wow. Then in verse 3, even if these gifts have manifest the natural outworking of their compulsion in a positive way. So we have faith or we're willing to give. And even if these gifts manifest themselves in positive action, he says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, even if the man with the spiritual gift of giving has taken all that he has and gives it to the poor, or even if a man would give his own life regardless of the physical or material outcome that your spiritual gift has brought about, 
without the particular virtue of charity, there is no spiritual benefit to the person that gave it. In other words, I could get up here and I could expound upon the Word of God perfectly. I could tell you exactly what it says. I could, I could be, um, I could be accurate. I could, um, apply properly. I could give the proper exhibition of everything that God's Word has said. And yet, if I do it in a way that is detached from charity, then spiritually speaking, it will profit me nothing. It may profit you, but it will, it will have no spiritual profit. It will not go in the pile of gold, silver, and precious stones in heaven. It will go in the pile of wood, hay, and stubble as we consider 1 Corinthians 2. Could you imagine a situation where a person has exercised his spiritual gift for years, but has done so in a manner that has had no spiritual fruit or benefit because he has not exercised it in love? It's a dreadful thought, is it not? That a person could teach or give or serve or study or discern or edify and have those efforts come to no personal spiritual benefit. And so this ingredient, this ingredient that causes these spiritual gifts that are otherwise benign to become something that is spiritually beneficial is charity, is love. The Greek word for love that we see here is the word agape, one that perhaps may be familiar to you if you've heard preaching before on love. It's one of two Greek words for love found in the Bible. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, I've always heard three Greek words. That's right, there are three Greek words for love. Agape, phileo, and eros. However, only two of these are actually found in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but it's true. Phileo and agape are the only two found in the Bible. Eros is not found in the Bible. Now, many preachers, again, will tell you that there's a, a dramatic difference between these words, and they'll wrap entire sermons around the difference between these three types of love. And this may make for good preaching, but it's not very accurate as it comes to how the words are used in the Bible. They'll say something like this, that phileo means brotherly affection, and agape means Christ-like love. And they'll often seek to make the point that we need to love God and others with agape love, not phileo love. And they're really hammering on this idea of the agape love. But the problem is, both of these types of love, as far as my study has taken me, speak of our love for God and our love for others. And in fact, in many ways, they're used interchangeably. Now, I'll describe it this way. They're not so much speaking of two different kinds of love as much as they're speaking about two different emphases in the context of that love. I would say that phileo emphasizes a love that is manifest in loyalty. And agape emphasizes a love that is manifest in sacrifice. Phileo is a love that is manifest in loyalty. Agape is a love that is manifest in sacrifice. Now, both are very strong and both are very necessary physically and spiritually. In fact, I would argue that more often than not, both of these types of love are manifest in the same emotions, feelings, and actions. When I love my wife, do I not love her as much in loyalty as I do in sacrifice? Should I only love her in the agape way of sacrifice and kind of just ignore the loyalty part? Well, that wouldn't make for a very good love, would it? To say that I need to have agape love for my wife instead of phileo love for my wife does the words injustice. In much the same way, to say that I cannot love the brethren with agape love, but rather I aim to love them with phileo love in a brotherly way does an injustice. Because yes, while I am more than desirous to love my brethren through loyalty, should I not also love my brethren through personal sacrifice? You say, well, pastor, maybe that just means you've got the definitions wrong of love. Maybe. But do the study yourself, and I think you'll come to the conclusion that phileo and agape are not as distinct as perhaps it can be made out to be. That these two types of love are different more in emphasis than they are 
in kind or manifestation. However, the word throughout the text today, the word that's used throughout the text today is agape. It's a kind of love that manifests itself in sacrifice. And what an appropriate word for this chapter. Sacrifice. You want a good word to summarize this chapter? I'd say the best word is selflessness. Sacrifice is a good word too. Notice with me beginning in verse 4 how Paul describes this love that we call, we have in our King James Bibles uh, as charity. Charity suffereth long, he says, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. We'll stop there and continue through the text. We are just going to walk through each of these characteristics this morning and glean from them. He begins in verse 4 saying, Charity suffereth long. The charity that makes spiritual gifts effective. Remember, that's our context. The effectiveness of spiritual gifts. The more excellent way. The thing that is better than simply exercising your spiritual gift. The thing that is better than simply identifying your spiritual gift. Do you know your spiritual gift? Great. Are you looking for your spiritual gift? Wonderful. But as you're working toward finding it, or as you're working through it, don't neglect charity. It suffers long. There's very little that can be done in ministry without a heart that is willing to be long-suffering. See, churches are made up of people, aren't they? Now, there's, there's precedent in the Scripture that we can call the building or the assembly the church. However, as we think about the church in its broadest context, and we think about the church in its more realistic context, the church is the people, not the building. And that means that the church is made up of people. And even though all of the people of a church, as far as a, a, the, the true church is concerned, all of those people are Holy Spirit indwelled, they're believers, the new creation does not necessarily remove our personality, does it? Nor does each Holy Spirit indwelled believer always resist the flesh and the devil. Not everyone in the church sees eye to eye on everything. We don't all share the same priorities. We don't all appreciate the same things. We don't all have the same standards. We don't all um, enjoy each other's personality quirks, do we? And if we're not willing to patiently bear one another, we will find ourselves ineffective as our differences begin to create rifts that are difficult to stitch back together. Maybe it's even the exercising of our spiritual gifts that cause risks from time to time. The fact that a person serves or the fact that a person wants to do something, if it is not compelled by charity, seen in light of charity, and if we don't have long-suffering one toward another, then we are going to break apart like that. We're all so different. If we don't have charity to bind us together, this church will fail, as will every church. So charity suffers long. Charity second is kind. Kindness is what long-suffering maintains. As a church of Holy Spirit and dwelled believers, we are usually kind to one another, right? That is until differences or disagreements or offenses begin to interfere with that kindness. Now as this happens... As differences or disagreements begin to interfere, you want the service at 7. He wants the service at 6. You think pastor looks good in a beard. You don't want pastor to have a beard. As all of these things begin happening, as we begin to exercise our gifts, and someone came in and did something that someone else was intending to do, there was a miscommunication and somebody was planning on doing something and it never got done. As all of these things begin to happen, our kindness can begin to falter. Well, he did this to me. He said this. He was probably thinking this. He may have thought that. He went there. He did this. He thought that. What maintains our kindness when people start to falter in their personality traits, character, and actions? Long-suffering. So kindness is what the long-suffering is attempting to maintain, which means we need to have the kindness to begin with. We ought to be kind 
to one another. For only in the context of kindness can our spiritual gifts be maximized in effect and in honor to God. We're going to be kind one to another. We're going to have deference one to another. We're going to have charity. Moving on. Charity suffers long. Charity is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity is never defined by envy. If we interpret this within the context of spiritual gifts, which is the context in which Paul is speaking here, this is speaking of the one who has become upset or the one who has become resentful because he doesn't have the gift that someone else has. He sees pastor or he sees the evangelist or he sees the exhorter or whoever it might be and he wishes that he could have their gifts or abilities. And he begins to get envious. But consider the side effects of envy among the brethren. Envy causes us to see one another not in terms of how I can serve them or bless them, but rather in terms of resentment. Why am I not like them? Instead of looking at them and thanking God for what God has gifted them with and how God is using them, we get so focused on ourselves that we just simply say, I wish I was them and we lose focus on our gift and we don't exhibit our gift properly and we also fail to bless them. Our envy will erode our kindness which has already been a, uh, a character trait of charity. Envy and love are incompatible because love is all about another while envy is all about me. If there's envy in your life you can be sure of one thing. Where that envy is working, love is not. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. The believer that vaunts himself is a believer who is seeking to draw attention to himself and, in this context, the gifts that God has given him. The word literally means to boast, and it doesn't comment upon the legitimacy of the claims at all. And what I mean by that statement is this. Now, there are people that brag about what they do or what they think they can do as a means of compensating for what they aren't, right? Guys that are constantly bragging to make you think that there's something that they aren't. But then there are those who brag who actually have some capacity to back it up. They actually are really good. They actually are very smart, fast, whatever it can be. But the scriptures, folks, particularly young men, the scriptures do not distinguish between whether you're bragging in a false way or whether you're bragging and you can back it up. As if bragging were wrong only if it's not true. See, the problem is not about whether or not what you're saying is true. The problem is that you are drawing attention to yourself. Now, this is what we've been learning quite literally for months in 1 Corinthians, is it not? That the man and the woman that find favor with God are the man and the woman who lower themselves, who place themselves in the background, who, according to James 4, humble themselves so that God may lift them up. The one who is setting aside his liberties for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the brethren, is the man that is exalted in the eyes of God. The one who is using his gifts but not drawing attention to his gifts is the one who is using his gifts in a manner that is loving and therefore appropriate and therefore beneficial. If you have gifts and you know you have gifts and you are going to take those gifts and you are going to flaunt those gifts, whether you can back it up or not, you are not exercising charity because you are vaunting yourself. You are drawing attention to yourself instead of being selfless. See, love in any context is about taking attention and glory and favor and blessing and priority off of yourself and placing it upon another. You love your spouse when you take attention off of yourself and place it upon him or place it upon her. You love your children when you yield your priorities for their sakes. You love your fellow believers when you give of your time and your money and your convenience for their blessing and for their benefit. And you love God when you are willing and 
uh, glad to defer your own will, your own desires, your own priorities to God's will, to God's desires, and to God's expectations. This is love, folks. Love does not operate outside of the context of selflessness. Maybe already you're starting to say, wow, I'm not loving my wife as I ought, my husband as I ought, my children as I ought, my church as I ought. Or maybe you're thinking already in the concept of the spiritual gifts and you say, yep, I've been exercising my spiritual gift, but I've been vaunting myself. I've been envying. I've not been exercising it in love. And what the scriptures tell us is that means I am nothing and that my gifts are coming to nothing. Now this next attribute reminds us that love is not just manifest externally, but it is also manifest internally. Is not puffed up. The difference between vaunting oneself and being puffed up is the difference between external pride and internal pride. Whereas the braggart, the vaunter of himself, is the man who openly announces his superiority with the intent of garnering praise and attention, the man who is puffed up may not openly declare his superiority, but still strongly feels his superiority. See, the problem is that to act as a humble man externally while inside you are lifting yourself up in pride and thinking yourself to be something very special doesn't make you humble. It makes you a liar. It makes you a hypocrite. Hypocrisy may get us somewhere with men. Your pastor may stand up here and act the humble part while inside thinking he's the greatest preacher that this world has ever seen. And to you... There may be some sort of example, oh, pastor, he's so humble, but when I stand before God one day, he will make my heart known. And he will say, you may have acted the part of the humble man, but you were a hypocrite all those years. You weren't humble. There was not an ounce of your heart that took any attention away from yourself. You were constantly vaunting yourself. You were puffed up on the inside. As a side note, can you see why the current self-esteem culture that we're in is so dangerous? People are being taught that the reason they have problems in life is because they don't love themselves enough. Children are going through their entire childhood without ever knowing what it means to lose or to fall short or to work harder without ever being told that they need to humble themselves, that they need to apologize, that they did something wrong, that they're not perfect, that they're not necessarily beautiful, that they're not necessarily the best. We are a society that has become convinced that all of our problems are related to our self-image. And if we can simply improve our self-image, we can improve every aspect of our lives. But folks, what we are really doing when we are subscribing to that teaching is we are stripping ourselves of the possibility of finding the most essential element of spiritual strength that there is, and that element is humility. Humility is the most essential element of spiritual strength. You want to be strong spiritually, you humble yourselves in the eyes of God. The sacrifices of God, Psalm 51, is a contrite heart and a contrite and broken spirit. That's what God sees as acceptable. And yet, what is society telling our children? You're the best. You're the greatest. You're beautiful. You're capable. Build up their self-image. And yet, as we read in Psalm 22, verse 6 this morning, what did David say in his Messianic Psalm? David said, God, you've always delivered men, but I am a worm and no man. Could you imagine the psychologist, what kind of a field day they'd have with someone that said, I'm a worm and no man. But there's a man after God's own heart writing it in a messianic psalm that reflected Jesus Christ. Wow. Maybe, maybe we've allowed Christian culture to be eroded by humanism. Maybe, 
we have everything in this culture backward. Maybe what would solve the problems, the psychological problems and the physical problems of our age is not a dose of self-esteem, but a dose of humble pie. Maybe we need to stop looking at it in the mirror and saying, you're beautiful and you're capable and you're... And we need to start saying, God, I am nothing without you. God, there is nothing in me that is worthy and yet through you, as I humble myself before you, I will set myself aside. I will love others. I will exalt others. I will serve others. And then, God, you will be praised and I will have treasure in heaven. By the way, by confirming ourselves in personal pride and good self-esteem, we also strip ourselves and our children of the capacity to express true love, which is rooted in selflessness and humility. What's going to happen when all of these children that have grown up realize, thinking that they're perfect just as they are, that they're beautiful, that they, that they have all of the capability within themselves are confronted with the fact that they can't get themselves to heaven. Do you know how hard it is to explain to someone who has high self-esteem that they're a sinner in the eyes of an angry God? That they're on their way to hell and that there's absolutely nothing they can do to pull themselves out of it? Why is that so hard for them? Because they've been told their entire life, you're a winner. Because they've been told for their entire life, there's nothing you can't do. Because they've been told for their entire life, yes, never know. How hard is it for someone like that to be humbled before an almighty holy God? How hard is it for someone like that to say, I'm going to serve others with my whole heart because so much of their heart is devoted to themselves? We're not doing any favors in this self-esteem culture. Can you see that it is a biblical contradiction to love myself? That the very essence of love is selflessness? So to love myself is as contradictory as light and darkness, as east and west? Self-love is nothing more than a personal pride which denies the biblical expression of love, which is selflessness, which is me down here, others up here, God way up here. That's love. No wonder marriages fail. No wonder families are torn apart. No wonder churches are constantly dividing and splitting. No wonder. We're also self-entitled. And it's the exact opposite of biblical love. Because charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Verse 5, doth not behave itself unseemly. This word literally meaning to behave disgracefully. To behave disgracefully is without, without fail to behave selfishly. No one behaves in a disgraceful manner if they do not believe in some capacity that is going to increase their advantage. You don't behave disgracefully unless you're looking for advantage or attention. We've learned already that the very definition of love is lowering oneself, and we'll see this plainly in the next attribute. So to behave in an unseemly manner is to behave in a manner that either, number one, draws attention to oneself, or number two, draws attention away from another. Maybe you're not trying to draw attention to yourself, but you're trying to draw attention away from another. My wife and I sometimes will be hugging one another, and one of my daughters will come in and wiggle her way in between. It's not that she doesn't necessarily want mom and dad to be hugging. It's that she wants the attention. Attention on me, please. Wiggle, 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 wiggle. I'm just going to stay right here in between you two. Now, I'm not necessarily saying what she's doing is disgraceful. But what I'm saying is when we, particularly as adults, are doing disgraceful things, we are doing so either to draw attention to ourselves or we are doing so to draw attention away from someone else. Uh, I might say it this way. Um, we're acting childish. We see politicians do this all the time, right? Big scandal comes up and what happens? Distraction! They have to find something to distract the people. They're drawing attention away from 
something important and putting on something unnecessary. This is, this is the, the idea. None of these things characterize love. In the context of spiritual gifts, to use our spiritual gifts in a manner that is disgraceful for personal gain, for personal glory, to tear down another is to use them apart from love and therefore to make them spiritually useless. Seeketh not her own. Now I'll rest on this next point for just a moment because we've talked about it already. In the context of spiritual gifts, one who exercises them for his own personal benefit, in the context of everything, but we're in spiritual gifts here, one who is exercising, one who is living, one who is acting for their own personal benefit or glory rather than for the blessing of, in the spiritual gift context, the church or in the other actions context for the good of another and for the glory of God fails to manifest anything that is spiritually beneficial. Are you, are you catching the theme? Are you tracing this idea of what love is? If we wanted to sum it up, if I wanted to give a three-word sermon, I could have just come up and said charity is selfless. But we're going to keep going anyway. Not, uh, seeketh not her own is not easily provoked. True love is not easily provoked. This coincides much with the idea of patience and reveals not only passive long-suffering, but an active desire to think well of another, even when they're acting in a way that would not or that would provoke anger. Let me just give you explain the difference. Patience is what happens. Long-suffering is what happens when a person does something without the intent to anger, but is threatening to anger you anyway. This is kind of like what happens when your daughter or maybe your sister has her friends over for a sleepover and they're up giggling till 2 in the morning. They're not necessarily trying to be malicious, but they're keeping you up. And if you exercise long-suffering to not explode at them, that is that passive idea of they're not necessarily doing something malicious, but it's still getting on your nerves and you're going to be patient. Now, the idea here of suffering long is when a person does something that is quite intentionally provoking, intentionally angering, and you are able to love them anyway. This is like the brother or the son or sister or whatever that's sitting behind you in the car or on the airplane and is kicking your seat, trying to get a rise out of you. See, that's not a long-suffering issue. That is a that 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 is an issue of um um not being easily provoked. That's the difference. One is passive. Okay, that guy's laugh gets on my nerve. I'm going to be long-suffering. He's not can't change his laugh. I'm going to long-suffer. Or that guy is flicking me on the shoulder trying to get my attention. I'm not going to be easily provoked. That's the difference. It's unfortunate that in the church you will find both those who need patience, but also those who are very intentional in their provocation. The Scriptures say we need to be intentional in our willingness not to be provoked by them. The love that bears spiritual fruit is a love that endures both forms of trouble for the sake of the body. Now the final characteristic in verse 5, we're getting there, we're plugging through here, is that love thinks no evil. The word in the Greek here is not just the evil that doesn't come to mind, but the evil deeds that are intentionally calculated. Love thinketh no evil. It's not intentionally calculating evil. Love does not conspire to injure another. Certainly physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. It is not foreign to the church to see believers intentionally hurting one another, is it? That happens in the church. But in doing so, they abandon any pretense of love and reflect nothing but wickedness in their actions because love has no place for evil thoughts, for intentional evil. Only one attribute in verse 6, charity rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Love never ever rejoices in iniquity. Why is this? This is an interesting attribute, isn't it? Isn't it? Why? What, what is the link between rejoicing in iniquity and being unloving. Well, as we've seen, 
the overwhelming issue when regarding love is selflessness. Can a person who truly cares for the best interests of another rejoice in their sin? Knowing what sin is and what it does, that sin has no positive effects, that sin always takes a man farther than he, than he uh, intended to go, that sin is not just addictive, but sin is possessive. May I say that again? Sin is not just addictive, sin is possessive. It clings to men. It fights to hold men. It demands allegiance. All that is defined as self is the enemy of God. Can anyone who truly loves another rejoice in the commission of iniquity? Whether we speak of a love for God or a love for another, iniquity brings nothing but destruction. Anything about iniquity that would seek to cause rejoicing is nothing more than deceit. Likewise, in context, to rejoice over those who are using their spiritual gifts in a sinful manner, whether to fleece the flock of God or to pursue one's own false interests, is to fail the love test and to fail at bearing any true spiritual fruit. Verse 7 gives us the last set of attributes. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And this is where we will close today after an application. Now, the first attribute of these four is to bear all things, literally to pass over or to cover. From our King James translation, the meaning would seem very similar to patience or long-suffering, but really it's not. It speaks not of long-suffering or of avoiding anger, but of overlooking a fault altogether. You say, overlooking faults. Yes, the Scriptures tell us in several places that this is appropriate. Consider Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. How about First Peter 4, 8? And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. What is meant by this? That love covers a multitude of sins. Now we've already established that love does not rejoice in iniquity, does not rejoice in sin. So we know that the Bible is not saying that if we love somebody, we will conceal their sin. That is not what the Bible is saying. This is not concealing sin. This is covering sin. What the Bible is saying is that love has the capacity to overcome sin and fault and error and pain through forgiveness and help and restoration. In the church setting, love is essential. People wrong us. People fail us. People sin against us because they need time to grow and to mature and to learn and to understand. And if we are quick to abandon one another for our failings, we run the risk of stunting our growth as well as theirs. But if we allow our love for the believer to overcome their sins and their faults, we make possible a greater degree of growth and of understanding, and of even greater love in the future. Perhaps the concept is a bit confusing to you. I will say this first. Jesus Christ's blood covers our sin. His love in dying on the cross covers our sin. That's the covering. It's not that He rejoices in our sin. It's not that He conceals our sin. In fact, the cross of Jesus Christ proclaims our sin. But... It loves us in spite of our sin. The concept might sound strange, but I think most of you have exercised this love, even quite regularly to one degree or another. You know, as a parent of twin daughters, I can relate to the saying, God made our children cute so we don't kill them. I can relate to that. The reason why God made small children cute is so that we don't kill them. I have these twin daughters and they are learning at the same time because they're both two and a half years old. At the same time, they are both learning how to exercise their will against daddy. I already cannot count the number of times my love for them has covered their sins. That though they have intentionally wronged me, I have yet allowed my love to overcome their wrong so that I will still hold them and hug them. Now, I will discipline them because that's love as well, is it not? But I will not be embittered against them. I will not levy it against them. I will forgive. I will move on. I will, I will feed them. I will clothe them because my love is covering a multitude of their sins. 
This is what Solomon meant in Proverbs. This is what Peter meant in 1 Peter. This is what Paul means when he says that charity beareth all things. It covers sin. Someone wrongs you and you can overlook it and forgive them and still treat them with Christ-like love. That is love. You're not going to cut off the relationship and be bitter against them for the rest of you. That's not love. Love will cover those sins. Love will forgive those sins. They didn't ask me. They didn't ask me for forgiveness, Father. They didn't ask me forgiveness, Pastor. Since when did our Father tell us that them asking for forgiveness was a condition? I don't see it in Scripture. Love releases people. It beareth all things. Believeth all things. The second phrase there. Love not only covers a multitude of sins, but if I may say this at the risk of sounding cliche, it believes in the unbelievable. Love pursues the unlovable. Love redeems the unredeemable. It is this aspect of love that draws so many to Christ and reflects so nobly in Christians. The fact that a person gets on their knees and says, God, how could you possibly ever love me knowing what I've done? And then they realize that God sent His only begotten Son to die for all that they have done. Love believes the rebellious soul can find repentance. Love believes the lost soul can be found. Love looks at Buffalo, Minnesota and sees a harvest field, not a lost cause. Love looks at our wayward family members and our wayward friends and sees the possibility of salvation, not the hardness of hearts. Love beareth and believeth. Third, love hopeth all things. Biblical hope is not the same way that we would think of hope in our day. Hope is not a fearful longing of some remote possibility in the Bible. In the Bible, hope is a joyful and earnest expectation of that which is assured. It may sound cliche again, but Christians know better than anyone the hope, the expectation, the earnest expectation that comes with love. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 8 says this, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ did not come to save the righteous. He came to call sinners unto repentance. God exercised his love toward us when we were his enemies because love can overcome the greatest of barriers. Love beareth all things, covers all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things. Now, I struggle even saying these words in this manner because the last thing I want you to believe is that Disney was right when they talked about what love is. The world's concept of love is overcoming all all is more or less saying that a human capacity for good is greater than any of the world's ills. That a person has within them the capacity for good that will overcome bad. This is not love. This is a lie from the devil. That's That's the Disney definition of love. That my inward capacity for good will overcome all of the bad. And at the end of the Disney movie, the bad guy becomes good and the good guy becomes super good and everyone's happy at the end because love conquers all. That's not love. There is nothing in you that has any capacity for good. Nothing. There is nothing in you that is worth hoping in. But the love that Paul is speaking of here is not your love, is it? It is God's love through you. And as we are able to exercise divine love for one another and for God and for the lost, we will find a hope and a bearing of all things, a believing of all things, a hoping of all things that can overcome the evil which mankind not only lives in, but mankind takes pleasure in. So you have that man next door that hates you because you love God, that hates God. He's a lost cause, right? Can't be one. Wrong. As you live out God's love, God's love through you might just crack that hard heart. It can. Our evangelist that was here next uh, last week, he told us one of the things that he had been told when he came up for salvation. 
man came up to him and said, you had the hardest heart I have ever seen in my life. I never thought it was possible for you to get saved. How did he get saved? Because the love of God beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, recognizes that the love of God can break the unbreakable, can redeem the unredeemable, can forgive the unforgivable. And your pastor standing here today as a testimony of that, as are every single one of you that's a born-again believer in this room. This love hopes. This love understands that the love of God is greater than the darkness of this world. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things. The final word endureth all things. Of all the bearing and believing and hoping, all of this makes little difference without endurance, the capacity to remain. Christ-like love not only loves the strongest, but it also endures the longest. Christ's love for us endures for eternity. Our love for others must not be fleeting, folks. And our love as we exercise our gifts in the body, through all of the long-suffering, through all of the patience, through all of the pain, through all of the offenses, must endure. The world would try to convince us that our love for others ought to be contingent upon their actions, right? I love a person based upon how he treats me. I love them because they treat me well. I love the person because it benefits me. I love a person as long as everything's going well. But the love that God expects from us is not this kind of love. God's love is a love that endures through trials, through tribulations. May I put it in the words of a marriage ceremony? God's love is till death do us part. That's a reflection of the kind of enduring love that God expects. So let's apply. Two points as we apply this morning. Number one, love is defined by God, not by men. Love is defined by God, not by men. If, if you've learned something uh, on the periphery of all that we've talked about with spiritual gifts, learn this, that no man has the authority to define what love is. That as we've talked about the self-esteem and self-love, as we've talked about the conditional love that people see today, as we talk about love as something good inside yourself that conquers all, these are man's definitions of love, and man's definitions of love are wrong. None of those elements will ever actually truly be what love is. Love is defined by God. The world wants us to believe that love is rooted right here in our hearts. Hearts which the Bible calls in Jeremiah 17.9 deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you want that thing that's deceitful and desperately wicked running your emotions? Operating your life? Dictating your direction? The world wants us to believe that love is subjective based upon how others treat us and how we're feeling on any given day. That I can fall into love and therefore fall out of love. That love is about me and what I deserve and what makes me happy. The world wants us to believe that love can ebb and flow, can pass from one person to another. That love is fickle, that love is demanding, such is the case with men's hearts. But could you imagine if God's love was that way? What happened? What would happen if you woke up this morning and God told you, I'm grumpy this morning, I'm not going to look at you. I'm grumpy this morning, I need a me day. I need a me day today. Could you imagine if God's love ebbed and flowed and waned? Could you imagine if God's love was contingent upon our actions? Do you know a lot of us in Christianity act that way? That God stops loving us when we sin and then we have to work our way back in favor to Him? But 1 Corinthians 13 shows us a love that does not change. If God loved you to enough to send His only begotten Son to die on the cross when you were dead in trespasses and sins, do you think His love for you continues when you wander? Now, there may be consequences, but that's love too. That's love too. My son, 
Solomon says in Proverbs 3, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Even as a father, the son in whom he is well pleased. Fathers, are you loving your children if you let them get away with anything they want? If you never correct them? Is that love? It's not love. Love looks at the child that's about to place his hand on the burner and smacks that hand. Says, get your hand away from that. Because you know that the consequences of the action would be greater than the consequences of the discipline. God chastens his children in love as a father chastens his children in love. Love is not what the world has tried to tell us it is. Biblical love is selfless above all else. That's our first sub-point. It has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the one I'm loving. This is God's love. Second, love is a choice. Love is selfless, but love is a choice. This is You need to get this as well. The divorce rate among married couples in the Western world reveals a startling aspect in regard to the human concept of love. We believe love is something we can choose and that love is contingent upon our emotions. The Bible does not teach that love is emotion. It teaches that love is a choice. When I think of the love that I have toward my wife, certainly it accompanies... It's accompanied by emotions, but it is dictated by choice. Am I going to choose to serve my wife today or not? My emotions may play a role in whether or not I want to, but my love is still a choice. And when I see love as a choice, when I see it for what it is, then all of a sudden I've just freed love from the boundaries and limits of my ever-changing emotions and have placed my love upon the firm footing that only wavers when I choose to let it waver, when I exercise my will against it instead of just the whims of my feelings. So when my wife and I are in disagreement, and we do disagree, rather than my love waning as my emotions turn from happiness to frustration, I now choose to love her in spite of my emotions, and my expression of love finds within this context not just strength, but even greater strength and greater meaning and greater determination than when I entertain those joyful emotions toward her. Love is a choice. God chose to love us. We choose to love Him. We choose to love one another. No one can force you out of love but you. This is the power of biblical love. It doesn't love within the context of emotions. It loves within the context, or it loves in spite of emotions. And this is the love that gives us the capacity to endure. This is the love that gives us the capacity to serve. This is the love that reflects the love of God toward us. Second, our second point. First, love is defined by God, not by men. It is selfless. It is a choice. Second, and finally, spiritual gifts must be exercised through, exercised through biblical love if they are to have any benefit in the church. The concept of love is so important to the Christian life that it can easily kind of fall behind the scenes. We can easily lose sight of the context within which we find ourselves. Paul is speaking on spiritual gifts in the church and the responsibilities that accompany them. As we consider the definition of love, we must never, ever fail in our determination to use our gifts in a manner that aligns with it. I can teach every week, but if I'm not teaching in love, that means giving you the whole truth. That means telling you the good and the bad. That means exhorting you into holiness. Then I am failing as far as spiritual benefit is concerned. You can exhort your brethren and you can seek to build them up, but if you fail to build them up negatively and positively in a way that would exercise true love toward them, directing them toward righteousness, then you're failing. Same with every gift. So as we prayerfully seek our gifts, as you are prayerfully desiring to know from God what it is He has for you to do in the church, or as you're exercising your gift, evaluate it within the context of love. And in doing so, not only will you be able to serve one another, but you will be able to reflect glory upon God. Let's pray.